World War II. It's known as the greatest generation. And these are their stories. It's the World War II Project. This is the Americhicks with your host, Kim Munson. Hey, welcome to the Americhicks with Kim Munson. This is our World War II Project. We're thrilled to have on the line with us George Snyder. Uh, George is a World War II veteran, and um, this project precipitated from a trip that I took with a group that took four D-Day veterans to Normandy in 2016. Upon return, we realized that these stories needed to be told, and hence our World War II project was born. Uh, So be sure and check out our website, AmeriChicks.com. All of our shows are archived there. We are the AmeriChicks on Facebook and Twitter as well. So, George Snyder, welcome to the AmeriChicks World War II Project. Thank you. Uh, How are you doing today? Uh, Hanging in there. Okay, that's good. Hey, how old are you, George? Uh, 94, almost, yeah, I I was 94 in October. Okay, well, happy birthday, and thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Tell us a little bit about where did you grow up, George Schneider? Well, I was born in Akron, Ohio, and uh, I was there until uh, first grade, and then that was when the Depression hit, and my dad lost his job, and we had to move out to a little village uh, about 20 miles west of Akron called Sterling on a an old dilapidated farm, and uh, we existed there during the Depression. Okay. how? Uh, where were you when you heard that um, Pearl Harbor had been bombed? Well, I was home uh, in the old farmhouse. We were listening to radio, and they interrupted it to announce the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Were you surprised? Oh, of course we were. Uh, most of us never even heard of Pearl Harbor. You know, what did you feel when you realized that the that America had been attacked? Well, it's just like there were 12 boys and 12 girls in my senior class. And the next morning in school, all the boys wanted to enlist and get those dirty Japs, you know. <laughs> so, uh, But we were all 17 then. And it wasn't until we were 18 that uh, uh, nine of the, of the 12 ended up in the service. How many of the nine came home? How many survived all the war? Us, all of us came home, yeah. Wow. That is... Most, most of them were Navy. Okay. That's fantastic, George. So how about you? Uh, when you? Were you 18 when you decided to get into the uh, military? Yeah, well, when I was 17, I wanted my parents to sign, but I already had a, an older brother in combat in Africa, and, uh, so they wouldn't sign for me. So I, I waited until I was 18 and got drafted. Okay, and you were drafted into the Army then, huh? Yes, I was. Okay, and so was that 1941, 1942? That was 43. It was 1943. Okay, so you're drafted into the Army now, George. Where did you go for your basic training? I was in uh, Camp Shelby, Mississippi for almost a year. What was training like? Uh, It was uh, typical training. Uh, All the the, uh, short-order drills, you learn all that, and then all the, the, uh, you get familiar with your weapons. And we go on the firing range and go on maneuvers, and uh, they prepared us for combat. 
Okay, that was 1943. Yep. So once you got through basic training, uh, you felt like you were well prepared then for combat, yes? Well, not really, no, <laughs> we weren't. <laughs> Are you ever we're really pretty, prepared? Pretty naive, yep. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure anybody's ever really prepared for that, George. Um, so you've completed basic training. What happened then? Well, then uh, they broke up most of our division for replacements and uh, started a journey that was going to take me overseas. I was shipped to uh, uh, Fort Meade, Maryland, and then for about a week, and then down to Patrick Henry, Virginia, and then up to Camp Kilmer, and that was the final uh, port from which I left. Okay. I left uh, from, from New York on the... Uh, about the 17th of May in 1944. Okay. So at that time, the Allies were preparing for D-Day. Um, That's right. And uh, I went to England. I was there uh, at the end of May sometime. And then, uh, of course, I was shuffled around in, in England for four different replacement camps and uh, in the meantime D-Day took place and then I went into Normandy on uh, at Omaha Beach but uh, when I went in it was already secure but I, I was there near the end of June sometime. Okay. Now you were, give us your, you, you served with the 120th Infantry, is that right? That's the infantry. That was 120th Regiment of the 30th Division. Okay. Okay. One of our friends over in uh, Europe likes to have all of that information. So the 100, 120th Regiment, the 30th Division. Is there anything else he needs to know about that? That's about it. Okay. I was in the 3rd Battalion of the 120th, if you want to break it down more. I think he does like to do that. So thank you so much, George. Okay, George, so you're in England. Uh, you are trained as a replacement. What was going through your mind during the Normandy invasion? Clearly, you must have known that it was going on, yes? Oh, yeah, we were just anticipating the day that we'd be going over. Uh, the, uh, we had intensive training. They, they almost <laughs> wore us out. We'd have uh, march, force marches and... Uh, Nothing on the rifle range. We already qualified with our weapons. So um, it was mostly physical training, get, getting ready. What did you hear about D-Day? Uh, actually, it was in, in the morning. Uh, we, were out, we were out of a uh, farmhouse in uh, England, and we were out on on the field in the morning and uh that's we could we had heard the planes going over all night and that's when it was announced to us that uh first troops had landed in normandy it was quite that a was day the, wasn't it it was quite a day yeah that was that was you know george when i was over in normandy in 2016 i was astounded uh, by several things. First of all, the French of Normandy uh, and, and the 
people from Holland and Belgium, they revere you guys, you World War II veterans, even to this day. Uh, Have you gone back? Have you been there? Oh, I've been back several times. And like you say, they can't uh, do enough for you. Even the poor villages that don't have much, you know, the the, the housewives turn out and they bake apple pies and do whatever they can for you. Uh, Yeah, I've been back several times. In fact, I was there in September, past September. I was in the Netherlands and Belgium. And how was that after all these years? Oh, it was a great reception. This was sponsored by the by the Best Defense Foundation. It was founded by Donnie Edwards, an ex-NFL football player, and he sponsors these trips. Uh, He takes small groups to areas where they fought, and they take us back to the battlefields. uh, So this year, he took six of us to uh, Belgium and the Netherlands for a 10-day trip. Wow. So, and uh, we had three three paratroopers, and three of us were from on the ground, and uh, they were able to take us even to places where we had fought. And uh, the, in fact, the uh, airmen were taken to the actual fields where they had fought, where they had dropped on D-Day, or uh, no, on the. Uh, Market Garden. Okay. The invasion in Netherlands. How did you feel when you were were there this last September when you were at these battlefields? Uh, well, there's there's not too much emotion anymore. There used to be, but uh, uh, I guess I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, Malmedy massacre. You know, I just have recently done some research on that. Tell me about it. Well, it was. It was uh, actually the massacre was on the 17th of, of uh, December when the Germans broke through on the 16th. And then on the 17th, they captured these Americans and herded them in a field. It's actually about uh, three and a half kilometers south of Malmody in a little intersection called Bosnay. And uh, they proceeded to massacre these. Of course, they didn't get all of them. There were a few survivors, and they reported this, but this was still in German hands after after the massacre. So it wasn't until January the 14th, I believe, which was almost one month later, when we went on the offensive, it was our battalion that actually found the bodies. And they had been there frozen stiff for uh, almost a month. But then when we found them, then it was confirmed that the massacre had taken place. Wow. So, George, you what what went through your mind when you came upon this? Uh, well, it, uh, it, there was just more hatred for the Germans than ever when we saw what they had done. And uh, so, actually, there were times when some German prisoners were were shot because of uh, they might have, of course they had American uniforms on and that was reason enough but uh, yeah they they uh, it was the SS troops that did this of course and they the were, regular uh, army uh, probably wouldn't have done this but the SS troops they were the nasty ones and uh, not far from Malmody 
uh, a place called Stavlo, they massacred 134 civilians, mostly women and children. And uh, so there were a lot of these taking place by them. And uh, yeah, it's just some uh, hatred just boiled up inside of us. Well, you know, the question that, and I think it's a really naive question because I don't think that there's really an answer, but I would question why. Do you have any answer to that, George Schneider? Why would they do that? uh, Why they did it? Yeah. Well, uh, they had orders to don't take any prisoners for one thing. Because this would be this was their last attempt to uh, have any kind of a successful campaign at all, and their their mission was to break through our lines and uh, go to the city of Liège, where we had a big replacement or a big uh, supply depot, and this would replenish their gasoline, pick up more ammunition, and order supplies they needed, and then continue on to Antwerp which was a port where most of our supplies were coming in. And in doing so, they would split the uh, British from the Americans, and then uh, they could concentrate on the British, and the Americans would say, well, what are we doing here? We might as well go home. Of course, it didn't work out that way. Well, now, you're just a kid. How old would you have been at this time then, George? 18, 19? I was 19 most of the time. In fact, I went all the way across Europe uh, into Germany before I was 20. Wow. That's amazing. Well, let's back up just a little bit. You have uh, gone on to the beach at Normandy. What went through your mind then? I mean, what a historic place. When when I was at uh, Normandy Beach, it's sacred ground. I, I can just, it's just felt sacred to me. But what did, what was going through your mind as you yeah, walked onto that beach? About, that's about the feeling you get. You know, of course, it, like I say, it was secured. Of course, there was debris all over the place yet. But uh, you wonder how they ever made it, really. And... Uh, of course, some of those missions were, uh, were suicide missions, like the ones that, that uh, scaled the cliffs at Point de Hawk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and the D-Day actually didn't go off as planned. The, the, the Navy didn't hit hardly any targets at all. And, of course, all those emplacements that the Germans had were not destroyed. And the Air Force didn't do any good knocking them out either. So uh, the landing was not prepared too well. Of course, they anticipated that the Navy and the Air Force would destroy so much of the fortification that we wouldn't have any problem. Well, uh, uh, walking on shore. Many years later, with our four D-Day veterans, one of the guy was in the one of the guys was in uh, the Air Corps. And there was, after all these years, some good-natured jostling back and forth where they said to the Air Corps guy that the only thing you guys hit was a few cows out in the pasture. You missed everything else is what they said. Yeah. <laughs> what they said. Okay. So, okay, so you've gone on, on to Normandy Beach, and by that time it's secure. So what, what happens from there? You get on trucks or you're headed to battle or what happened? I don't remember whether we were trucked or whether we marched. I don't really remember, but we went to a, uh, just an open field, and uh, it was a, another replacement depot. 
and uh, we dug our foxholes, and we waited there for about a week, and then they moved us to another one, and we were there for another week or so, and then we went to uh, the final one before I joined my outfit in combat. Uh, that was the third replacement depot I went in, and uh, that was right near St. Lowe. In uh, Normandy. Okay. What was the reaction of the people there in Normandy at that time when they saw you guys? Well, I didn't see too many civilians, but uh, they they were grateful. Of course, every farmhouse had a barrel of cider and some cognac. And, of course, we had to have a few toasts with the local natives and... uh, uh, they knew that much of their uh, towns had been destroyed and would be destroyed, but uh, I think they accepted that. They were relieved that they had been uh, liberated. Okay. So you are now headed towards combat. Where is the first place that you actually saw action, George Schneider? Well, I... I joined them the day of the bombing of St. Lowe, which uh, that's a story in itself. And uh, our division was the one that broke through at St. Lowe. It was not Patton, they say. Patton broke through at St. Lowe and then raced on to Paris. Well, that's Hollywood. Uh, we broke through St. Lowe, and I joined them that night. And then uh, for the next couple weeks or so, we were battling in Normandy, uh, uh, although the uh, campaign changed its name to Northern France, although there was still some fighting in Normandy. And during that time, the Battle of Mortain took place. I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but that's a much under-publicized battle that we were involved in. Uh, I was not in the actual battle. I was in a village next to it, but we were surrounded by the Germans, and uh, uh, the troops that we had, about 150 Americans, held the key position on a hill at Mortain called Hill 314. And the Germans had to capture Mortain. They had to, they needed. But uh, they had three Panzer divisions. These are tank divisions, plus thousands of foot troopers. And this is hard to believe. But those 150 men stopped that invasion. And uh, it's, it was because they had a key position on the highest area of Mortain. It was on Hill 314, 314 meters above sea level. And uh, we had, we had uh, uh, contact with the uh, artillery. And as long as we had observ- uh, uh, forward observers that would call in our uh, targets... The tanks would be coming, they'd call in the targets, and the artillery would open up on them, and then they'd, they'd stop. And this went on for five days. Now, we, we did have some help from the Air Corps, uh, multi-British uh, rocket planes, uh, the uh, Thunderbird and uh, uh, the Hurricane. And uh, between the Air Force and those 150 men, of course, uh, most of the 150 did not survive, but uh, they stopped the, the counterattack. And General Ron Klug, who was in charge of the attack, 
told Hitler that he just could not get past Hill 314. Wow. And he asked to withdraw. Of course, Hitler said no, but uh, von Krug withdrew and uh, committed suicide. Wow, what a fascinating story. Hey, George Schneider, World War II veteran, we're going to go to break. Before we do that, though, it is the Super Bowl today, and one of the big questions is is where you're going to watch the big game. Well, Hooters, of course. Hooters is your game day headquarters. Uh, You can have specials that start at $10 for a draft and 10 boneless wings. And today you can come in and register to win a brand-new 55-inch HDR TV. And did you know that Hooters wings can fly? You can have Hooters wings delivered to your doorstep. Try their new smoked wings. They're delish and only half the calories. So order your Hooters to go or have them delivered to your front door. More information, visit HootersColorado.com. That's HootersColorado.com. And let them know that you know the AmeriChicks. We will be right back with World War II veteran George Schneider. Hey, welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out our website, AmeriChicks.com. All of our shows are archived there. And we are the AmeriChicks on Facebook and Twitter as well. Uh, We are talking with World War II veteran George Schneider. Uh, He went on to Normandy Beach late in June after D-Day, and he's working his way across Europe. He just had shared with us a a fascinating story, a story that I, I saw a little bit about that, George, but it was the Battle of Mortain, and it was Hill 314. And you said that it was about uh, 150 guys, is that right, that held that uh, hill? 150 guys from uh, the 120th uh, Regiment plus 119th. Okay, and you were in the village uh, next door, basically. What was going on with you at that time? Well, we, we were... Uh, we were surrounded by the Germans, but they weren't attacking us, and uh, we were cut off, of course. And uh, even though I had just joined the outfit, it didn't take the, our top management to find out that I spoke French. So they had me contact the French underground that was stationed there. They had a bunch of teenagers in the farmhouse, and we put them to work. We, uh, I gave one of them a load of hay on a donkey cart, and he went down the road, and of course the Germans stopped him and turned him around, sent him back, and then when, when he got back, we he told us how far he had gone, we plotted it on a map, we knew where the Germans were, and then we sent an ambulance with two wounded in it, and uh, they were they were very uh, compassionate, I guess. Uh, they did not uh, capture the ambulance. They turned him around, told him to go back where he came from, and he was able to report where uh, the lion was there. So we knew where the Germans were, and uh, that was a big help. Where did you learn to speak French, George Schneider? Uh, My folks, I'm first-generation American, and my folks were French-Swiss. And uh, it has a, we have a German name, but that goes back to Alsace. Uh, and, uh, but my dad and my mother were both born in uh, the French part of Switzerland. So we spoke French at home all the time. Uh, by the time I was born, my parents had only been in the States for uh, probably about uh, no more than five years. I find it, so, you know, George, I find it so fascinating that here you are, first generation. Um, your parents are from Western Europe. 
and here their son is back fighting uh, tyranny and evil, you know, back in in the home country, if you will. I, I find that so fascinating. Well, well, that happened. Uh, so many, so many of the American soldiers. Uh, of course, you realize during World War II, uh, I would think that most of the soldiers were between the ages of uh, 18 and 25 or 26. That's the majority of the military, I believe. Mm -hmm. And they likewise, a lot of them were first generation, a lot of Italians, of course, from New York. And uh, I I never ran across any French, but there were some Germans. And, uh, yeah, there there were quite a few in that same generation. Well, I find it fascinating what you guys did then. How did you get connected with the French underground, these young teenagers that, well, a couple of questions. Uh, How did you get connected with them? Well, we were in, we were in the same farm village. Uh, we were in the same farmhouse as they were, or, uh, a little farm in uh, Normandy, and there were about five or six of them. And I later found out after the war that the leader of was quite a, a well-known fighter in the uh, resistance forces but uh, they, they were there and it didn't take much trouble to find anyone in the resistance but that's what I would do when we'd move on first thing I'd do I'd start talking to the civilians and, and they'd tell me what information they could about the Germans how far behind them we were and what kind of equipment they had and so forth but I did that in every village that we went through Okay. So you had combat at the, uh, let's see, near the Battle of Mortain. Uh, so what happened after that? Where did you go after that, George Schneider? Uh, actually, we started uh, moving pretty fast across northern France. And uh, I had my first encounter with some SS troops where uh, my trusty M1 saved our lives. There were three of us. They got surprised by the SS, and my other two companions, one, one of them uh, had a safety on his 45, and he panicked and couldn't fire. The other one had a carbine, which uh, misfired, and I was, the only, I was the only one with any firepower, and I was able to uh, return fire. They were they were no more than uh, fifty or sixty feet from me, and uh, uh, they one dropped, and then they they were in a vehicle, and they uh, backed up behind a stone wall and then disappeared. So I, I got my first uh, uh, action with any uh, with any Germans there, and they were happened to be SS. Well, and the SS were very very cruel, weren't they? Oh, yeah, yeah. And this was a typical, like you see in Hollywood, there was an officer. He had a a black uniform with the black uh, garrison cap with the skull and crossbones and had his black boots. Uh, He never fired. It was only his uh, passenger in the front seat that fired. Okay. uh, What went through your mind? What did you feel the first time that you realized you were being shot at that you could possibly lose your life? Well, at the time, you don't have any feelings. You just do what you're trained to do. And then, of course, after it's over, you realize there was a Frenchman standing next to me uh, when this firing broke out, and he got shot in the shoulder. 
so I got missed by about a foot. And uh, but uh, you know, after it's over, you you think about it, what could have happened, but you got through it. So let's see what happens next. <laughs> and in fact, the next morning I went on another patrol and uh, got picked up another prisoner. How'd that happen? Well, uh, outside, we were staying outside of this little village where I had encountered the SS troops. And we got word that in another village nearby, a uh, uh, an officer from one of our either tank destroyer crew that was attached to us, or I don't know who he was with, but he had captured these Germans, he and his driver, and he sent the driver to get some help. And uh, while he was there, the, the Germans overcame him. And the way that happened, that when we finally got there on this patrol and found out what happened, we found a cart with a lot of artificial arms. And uh, one of them was like a Captain Hook, a, Hook, uh, a Captain, what is what was the name of it? One that had a crooked uh, hook. Yeah, I think it was hand, Captain you know. Hook, yeah. Yeah, Captain Hook. And then there was another one, which was a stiletto. And so we surmised that somehow or other, this German officer with the with the fake with the artificial arm got behind the officer and he stabbed him right behind the shoulder, and he had killed him. So uh, that was a patrol we went on, and at that time, uh, I picked up another German in the area as our prisoner. Now, what? By this time, was it apparent that the Germans were going to lose the war, or what well, time? Well, no, I that don't know if they were apparent, but we never lost confidence that we would win. Okay. Uh, in fact, we were, across France, across France, we were moving so fast. That, uh, yeah, we thought we thought that everyone was talking about being home for Christmas. You know. Right. Right, but, but that we still had, there was a lot of fighting to go on yet. There was always that hope that that was going to happen. So you you must be getting close to Battle of the Bulge. What happens between where where we're talking well, right now and Battle of the Bulge? Across France, we we got just north of uh, Paris, and my uh, my battalion intelligence officer, Captain Christ or Pritchard, came to me late in the afternoon of September the 1st. And uh, he said, come on, Schneider, we're going to Belgium. Well, Belgium was over 100 miles to the north. So what the plan was, our division, together with the 2nd Armored and the 8th on our flanks, we were to move north until we got into Belgium. And uh, so that was our mission. Well, each division was had a... Uh, had a task force ahead of the division, and uh, we were not included in the task force, but Captain Pritchard, he was always looking for some excitement. He insisted that we join him, so he, he commandeered a jeep, and he picked up our S-2 officer, uh, Ed Hill, Captain Hill, and the three of us joined the task force and moved toward Belgium. 
And on the 2nd of September, at 6.30 in the afternoon, our first elements crossed into Belgium. We were the first division in the Belgium, first American division in the Belgium. And uh, since I was on this advanced party, uh, I, I claim that I was one of the first Americans in the Belgium. And uh, so that the first night in Belgium, uh, one of the most exciting of my career, and uh, it, it's a story in itself. In fact, I I wrote an article one time, the first in Belgium, and uh, it was a pretty pretty harrowing. We almost ran in Germans, and finally did. And uh, three of our recon troops that we had caught up with were, were killed, uh, but they were sitting right on our objective. So uh, the next day they had left, and uh, we were successful in getting to our objective, which was uh, about three or four kilometers north of a city called uh, Antoine. And we were there for probably about three days where the British moved through us. The British were always on our left flank. We were always one of the northernmost divisions in Europe. So. Uh, we moved out of there then, and we got to the Dutch border and uh, captured the Fort Ebene Mall, which was in Belgium. And uh, uh, this was the largest inland fort in Europe. It was Belgium, and of course, more of, most of the fortification faced east, where they expected Germans. And uh, so we captured the fort. And this was right on the border with the Netherlands. So from there, we crossed into the Netherlands, and we liberated the first village in the Netherlands and the first, first major city, which was Maastricht. And Maastricht is almost on the border with, uh, with Germany. Between Maastricht and the border, there are several smaller towns uh, in Limburg province. These are... Uh, uh, Herlin, Sittard, Kerkrod, uh, Valkenburg, a whole bunch of Dutch cities. In fact, one of them is so close in uh, in uh, one of these, the uh, there's a main street going through town, and the German Germany is on one side of the street, and the Netherlands is on the other. So, so we were right up the German border there, and we prepared to hit the Siegfried Line then for the next few days, and uh, which we did. And uh, we were in Germany by the 1st of October. Now, in this, I, I, I'm working on my history a bit, George, but is the next major offensive, is, is that Market Garden, or where are we at right now? No, Market Garden is going to be a little later. Market Garden's uh, in March. Okay. So what's, so, the, what's the next thing then? You said there is the Siegfried Line. What else? Well, we got through the Siegfried Line and then captured a bunch of German cities. And together with the 1st Division, we were able to capture the first major German city, which was Aachen. Mm-hmm. Which uh, in the, Charlemagne had this city as his headquarters, you know, back back about 590 or so. And uh, anyhow, they they called it Aix-la-Chapelle then in French. 
but we captured the first major German city, which was Aachen. And from there, we captured other German cities, and we were fighting our way across this part of Germany. And on the 16th of December, that's when the Battle of the Bulge started. So we were pulled away from there like some other first division divisions were pulled with our mission to go south until we hit the Germans. Of course, this was on the 16th of December, and uh, I guess it was on the 17th we were on the move. And now we got as far as Malmedy, and the Germans were on one side, and we were on the other. We beat them by just minutes. They wanted Malmedy, but we got there before they did, and we were able to hold them off. And for the next five days, uh, uh, they kept attacking. But we kept holding them off, and uh, this was all on the ground. There was no air support because of the overcast skies, the Air Force couldn't fly. So uh, for five days, we held them off on the ground. And, uh, and then on the 23rd of December, the skies cleared up. They were crystal clear, and uh, the Air Force could come out and help us. This is when uh, the... 101st Airborne, which was down in Bastogne, they were surrounded by the Germans, and this is the first relief that they got when the planes were able to drop supplies to them on the 23rd. So they were going to help us in Malmedy, too, so they bombed us in Malmedy on the 23rd. And we couldn't convince them that we were in Malmedy. They said, no, their intelligence says it's in German hands. So we couldn't convince them that these were uh, twin-engine planes, A-20s, B-26s. And then on the 24th, they came over again. This time with B-24s, just a big Liberator, four-engine bomber. And uh, they practically leveled the rest of the city. And that wasn't good enough. They came over on Christmas Day with some uh, twin-engine planes again and did some more bombing. So we were bombed three days in a row uh, by our own Air Force. But, uh, and then from there, this is when we started our offensive after, the, after Christmas time when we started moving south. And that's when we found the bodies at, uh, at the Bogany. Incidentally, the, the bomb, we only lost about 24 men. A lot of civilians were killed. We only lost about 24. But, you know, in the bombing of St. O, our division suffered two days of bombing by our Air Force. Uh, we, had, uh, we had 681 casualties from our own Air Force from that bombing. Gosh. And it, that's not publicized too much either. <laughs> no, that probably isn't. As a soldier on the ground, you know what? Let's do this. Let's go to break. I ha- I want to ask you, as a soldier on the ground, when you saw that you know you guys were really being bombed by your own team, you know what went through your mind? So let's go to break, and we'll be back. I want you to answer that question. This is Kim Munson with the Americhicks. We are talking to World War II veteran George Schneider. <laughs> Welcome back to the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson. This is our World War II project. We have on the line with us World War II veteran George Snyder. He was with the 120th Regiment in the 30th Division, uh, the 3rd Battalion also, for those of you that are wondering. 
And really a fascinating story. He came on to Normandy Beach uh, at the end of June after D-Day and then was uh, moving across Europe with a number of different battles and experiences. But, George, you mentioned that you guys actually had two days of bombing from our guys, that you were trying to convince them that, in fact, uh, the Allies, the the Americans held this particular little city, and they didn't believe you, and they were bombing it. Am I setting that up correctly? That's right. But uh, actually, it was three days because they bombed us. The 23rd, the 24th, and then on Christmas Day, too. Merry Christmas, huh? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so, but, uh, what went through your mind? There, there were different stories. Uh, the historians now say that they were they mistook Balmody for uh, some German city they were supposed to be bombing. That's one story. So, uh, I don't know what the true story is, but the fact is that uh, we could not convince them that we were in Balmody and they were bombing us. Wow. Okay. And that was the time that you found the American flyers that had been killed as well, right? Uh, these, 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 were, these weren't flyers that were killed. Do you mean the, the massacre site? Yeah. No, this was an artillery observation battalion. Okay. You, foot, they were foot soldiers. You know what? I think that, and that is one of the things that does happen is we get some misinformation because one of the sources that I read said it was American flyers, but oh. you, you did mention it. Was it intelli- intelligence guys? Is that right? You said? You mean they say they say it was uh, flyers that yeah. were massacred at Melody? Yeah. I I thought I read someplace oh, that it was flyers. No way. No way. They were They were... They were from the, I forget, 300 and something Field Artillery Observation Battalion. Okay, Field. They were relatively green troops. They got captured right away, and uh, they were herded into this open field and machine gunned them. Wow. And uh, uh, there were some survivors. I knew two of them. We had two of them in our, uh, I was president of the uh, Central Pennsylvania Battle of the Bulger Group. And uh, we had two of those who managed to play dead, and they escaped. But uh, there were just a handful of them that escaped. Now, I read about a lot of them in their their obituaries. He survived the Melmody massacre. Well, that's not true in most cases because there was just a handful that survived. Okay. They they played dead. The one one had... uh, a companion on each side of him shot in the head by uh, an officer who came through after they machine gunned him, and uh, he, he did not kill uh, this friend of mine. And then when he moved on, there was going to be some more shooting, and he played dead among the uh, corpses of his buddies, and uh, the officers came through again, and uh, it's they were speaking perfect English, and they would say, "How you doing, buddy? You hurt?" And if you responded, well, you got shot in the head. So this friend of mine played dead, and uh, the officer, or one of the soldiers with the officer, hit him with the butt of his rifle, and he didn't move. His biggest fear was that it was so cold that his breath would give him away. But uh, he managed to hold his breath, and they moved on, and he was able to escape later on. Wow! He still he still goes around telling the story. 
He's still alive. Oh, gosh, we'd, we'd like to chat with him as well, George. Oh, yeah. yeah. Harold Billow is his name, and he's, uh, oh, I guess he's living in uh, just uh, outside of Lancaster. I think it might be in uh, uh, one of the villages outside of Lancaster. He's retired there, of course. Okay, okay. George, these are really fascinating stories. Uh, what happened next? Are we getting close to Battle of the Bulge? You know, help me out. Where are okay, we at on, in okay. history? Well, uh, actually, uh, the Battle of the Bulge is never reported properly. All you hear about, uh, Hollywood is fascinated with uh, Patton and the 101st Airborne at Bastogne. And they make it sound like the Battle of the Bulge is the Battle of Bastogne. Well, the major thrust was not Bastogne. It was to the northwest. If you look at a map and you see where Liège is, it's to the northwest of uh, Balmody and Stavlo, where we were. So the thrusts were always in that direction. And uh, But any, anyhow, that's where most of the fighting took place. Most of the panzer divisions, which were thrown into the battle, were up around on the north shoulder. They were not a Bastogne. There was plenty of fighting down there, and the 101st took a terrible beating. But uh, it's not reported properly. Okay, and where were you there, in all of this? Books of this? Pardon? I said, where were you in all of this? Most of this, we were in Malmody itself. Okay. Okay. What were you going to say about most of the books? Pardon? What were you going to oh, say about say, most? There, there are some very good accounts of the Battle of the Bulge, and I can't recall the names of them now, but uh, they, they're they're reported to the way it was. George, did you have the proper equipment? I've talked. Excuse me. I've talked to a number of different. Um, veterans that were at Battle of the Bulge, and, and a lot of them didn't have the right equipment. There were frozen fingers and toes. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, yeah we, did not, we were not prepared for that cold weather. Uh, we had regular combat boots with just a pair of socks in the boots. And, we, of course, we had our winter uniforms from the day we landed in Normandy. We always had the winter uniforms on, the ODs. And we had overcoats. And uh, we had a, a little skull cap you could put underneath your helmet, but uh, and usually a pair of gloves. But uh, the clothing was not adequate. And like you say, there were frozen feet and uh, frozen fingers and trenched foot. And finally, our assistant division commander got an idea, so he rounded up all the GI blankets he could find and send them back to Belgium and had some women uh, make some booties for us. And uh, then we would put these booties on inside a pair of uh, galoshes, if you know what they mm -hmm. were. Mm -hmm. And uh, that kept us pretty dry, so that, that, that uh, prevented a lot of frozen feet. Okay. And it's so cold out. Tell me about a foxhole. Was there one guy, two guys, and it was so cold you couldn't really dig it in the ground? What did you guys do? Uh, yeah, that's where it was. L luckily, I was always able to always find a barn or a, a haystack or someplace where I wouldn't have to dig a foxhole. So uh, all during the bulge, I don't think I ever dug a foxhole. But, uh, you know, the, the rifle companies. They they had to dig their holes and, and 
like you say, it was frozen solid. And, uh, they had a terrible time. But, uh, yeah, I was pretty lucky. I was always found a farmhouse or someplace where I could get some refuge from the elements. And how about food? Well, we had nothing but rations, K rations and C rations. I lived on K rations for 290 days or so. In Normandy, we had the C rations, which were canned. Uh, one of them was pork and beans, another one was hash, and the third one was uh, stew. They were pretty bad. And then we got the K ration, which was a little better. That came in three different varieties, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And uh, so we lived on that most of the time. The, the kitchen would try to get us a hot meal when they could, but I, I can't recall any very many hot meals. Uh, uh, actually, I threw my mess kit away because we weren't getting any meals. And I remember in Germany one time that the kitchen was able to bring us breakfast. And they had uh, pancakes with the watery syrup, and I uh, had a helping of that. And then one of my friends was watching me, and when I f- finished, I didn't have a mess kit, so I had found a piece of broken china in this farmhouse. So they'd put these on, uh, pancakes on this old broken plate. And this friend of mine watched me, and when I finished, he says, hey, can I borrow your plate? Yeah. So he just shook out the remaining syrup, and he got his serving. So, yeah, uh, the the ladies uh, interested in etiquette would not have appreciated (laughs) our eating habits. I guess that's probably true. So what else do you want to tell us about the Battle of the Bulge, George? Uh, that's about all I can tell you about the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, the main thing is finding the uh, massacre yeah. uh, victims of, of Malmody. And then we moved on, and uh, the Third Army from the south moved north. And when we met at uh, St. Vith, uh, the, the battle was pretty much over. And by the 25th of January, we had driven them back to where they had started. Well, and the Germans, I mean, one of the things that that uh, we had been doing was really going after their both their ammunition dumps as well as um, their uh, their fuel, uh, where they had their fuel. And we were successful at that, but it was a number of years and it was a lot of bombing. But at least in the movie, I think, Battle of the Bulge, Hitler's tanks ran out of fuel. Was that true? Yeah. That, yeah, that's true. That's partly what stopped the bulge. You know. uh, Colonel Piper, who's the one that ordered the massacre at Melmody, he had driven uh, through Stavlo and, and uh, through an area called, uh, uh, what was the name? One of them was called the Chevron or Stavlo and Trapu. Anyhow, that's as far as he got. And at Stavlo, he was finally stopped. Then one reason was that uh, he didn't have the tanks anymore because they were running out of fuel. So he didn't have the—he finally retreated with only a handful of men that he had entered the bulge with. And so the bulge— The lack of fuel was a big, big uh, advantage for us. 
Well, and after the bulge, then what happened? Then where did you go? Well, we went back up north uh, to the area we had left, and this was now the center, the uh, Rhinelands campaign, and we uh, prepared to cross the Rhine River, the last major geographical obstacle in Germany. And so we were preparing for this, uh, which took place on the, the night of the 24th of uh, March. And this is when the Mar Operation Market Garden also took place. Okay. Uh, no, wait a minute. I'm sorry. No, this was uh, Operation Varsity. Market Garden had taken place earlier. Okay. And uh, the Market Garden took place in September. But uh, Varsity was the one when we crossed the Rhine. That was actually the largest airdrop of the war by the Allies. And uh, on the 24th of, on the 23rd, evening of the 23rd at midnight, the largest artillery barrage in the history of war took place. Every gun, I was up along the banks of the Rhine awaiting to cross, and every gun that could reach across the Rhine was firing. We had small arms, uh, small mortars and machine guns, and further back were the heavier mortars, uh, and then uh, further back were the 105 howitzers, and then the 155 howitzers, and further back even some 8-inch guns. This went on for about three hours, and the first troops passed, and uh, uh, the uh, in the morning of the, the 24th, uh, the engineers began building a pontoon bridge, but before they could build the bridge, uh, uh, I had been asked to be driver for the assistant battalion commander just a few days before. So I was his driver, and he and I uh, went across the Rhine in what they call an alligator. It was kind of a, like a hollowed-out tank, and it was self-propelled. And it took us to the other side of the Rhine. And uh, by then, our foot troops had advanced uh, several, several meters into Germany. And we moved to an area uh, alongside the, the river to the southeast. And we stopped in a village called Guters Wickerham. And we set up our headquarters there. Uh, and I have an interesting story to tell there if you have time. Uh, yeah. Let's, yeah, let's hear that story. We're about out of time, but I want to hear that story, George Schneider. Okay. A friend of mine, Jack Holm from Wisconsin, was standing guard in the biggest house we had taken over at our headquarters. And I was talking to Jack, and uh, he handed me a letter. He said, Here, here's a letter I wrote to my mother. Would you see to it it gets uh, mailed? I said, well, you didn't get it mailed as fast, as far, as easy as I can. So he said, no, I want you to have it. So I, I took the letter, and about that time, some prisoners were being herded into a church next door. So I said, I'm going to go help search these guys. So as soon as I got into the church, there was a heavy mortar barge laid on us. So I left the church, went back to where Jack was, and he was not there. And I asked somebody, where's Jack? I said, I think he got hit by that mortar barrage. 
so I went down in the cellar, and there he was, uh, uh, still warm but very dead. Oh. And I had been talking to him no more, no less, no more than uh, 15 minutes before. And you had and the letter. Give me that letter to mail. Oh my gosh, George, that's a story. And 24 hours later, I was wounded, and apparently the medics, <coughs> the medics found the letter on my, in my field jacket, and they had it mailed because after the war, I had his home address. And I contacted his family, and they said that letter had arrived. Oh. Last letter he wrote to his mother. Oh, my gosh. I just got chills with you telling me that story. George Schneider, we are out of time. I, I don't know where the time has gone. This is absolutely fascinating. Just very, very quickly, when you see the American flag now, what, do you, what goes through your mind? Uh, chokes me up. Yeah. time uh, when uh, I hear the national anthem and when I have to see the flag. Yep. Oh, wow. It's very emotional. Well, <clears throat> you, you got me I'd here, like too. To, I'd, like to, I'd like to beat the hell out of these people who burn. Yeah. Okay. I get it. You've seen what, what people have given for that American flag. George, right. George Schneider. <laughs> I am so honored to have gotten to visit with you this afternoon. Thank you so much. This has been a wonderful interview with George Schneider, 3rd Battalion, 120th Regiment, 30th Division, a World War II veteran. God bless you, George Schneider. Thank you so much. Well, you're welcome. And um, I hope you enjoyed the interview, too. I did. Okay, very much so. And I know our listeners will as well. So God bless you, George. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Join us next time for the World War II Project and your host, the Emeritchick, Kim Munson. Until then, keep saluting the greatest generation.